Hello and welcome to Found. I'm your host, Daryl Etherington. This is the podcast where we bring you the stories behind the startups from the founders who built them. I'm here with my co-host, Becca Skutak. And we're here live and in person because we just finished recording the episode you're about to hear live on stage at TechCrunch Early Stage in Boston. Woohoo! Go yeah. Bruins. Go Bruins indeed. My favorite team. Yeah. Uh-huh. They are one of those. All right. But without further ado, we have the show coming up. We talked to Russ Wilcox, who is a partner at Pillar VC and also was the founder of E-Inc. All right. Welcome. This is a exciting live podcast recording of our show, Found. It's uh, our show on TechCrunch where we interview founders every week. There's tons and tons of back episodes. You can go listen to those. All available right now. We've done an amazing job, I think, Becca. Me yeah, I would you. say that. Uh-huh. Yeah, it was amazing. And separately, personally, some personal news, I will say. I am uh, not actually doing Found anymore. That's going to be taken over by my excellent colleague, Dom. So listen for those episodes. They're being recorded right now. They are. Right? Yes. Awesome. But... I was happy to come out here for this last one and happy to talk to our guest today, who is Russ Wilcox, who is a partner at Pillar VC and also a founder, right? That's right. Thanks. Hi, Daryl. How are you? Great. Great. Great to have you. So you founded E-Inc., right? Yeah. So I spent 20 years of my career as a founder and then switched over five or six years ago to Venture Capital. And the bulk of my founder career is with E-Inc. Awesome. So you've other founder and multiple-time founder? After E-Inc., I did two other startups that were both very science-driven, swing-for-the-fences, you know, moonshots. And one was for cancer and one was for clean energy. After that, uh, switch over to venture capital. Amazing. So, yeah, we don't usually talk to people who have jumped the fence to speak to the other side. We talk to people in the thick of it. So do you want to just talk us through a bit about how that was for you and when you made the switch and why you made the switch to go over on the uh, VC side? So this was 2016, 2017. I had spent 12 years starting EAC and another five years with these two other ventures. And I just thought, okay, that's enough one at a time. Maybe I could do more in parallel. My good friend, Jamie Goldstein, had just spun out of another VC firm who was starting his own fund with Sarah Hodges. These are two really talented people. And Jamie said, why don't you come over and be a VC? Have you ever thought about that? And I was thinking, no, I will never do that. The VCs are the leeches on the back of the founders. They're sucking all the actual you know, energy out of what's happening. So he said, no, 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 we're going to have a firm that actually adds value. We have a lot of people around it who are operating focused and who can, who can do something for the founders. And we're going to take a very a culture which is very founder-friendly and we're going to treat people fairly. And I thought that sounded like the kind of seed firm I wish I'd had. So I got involved with that. Mm -hmm. And it's so common now, VCs looking for partners with operating experience. And that's been such a big trend over the last few years. But you definitely made the switch before that became the trend it is today. And what was it like actually making that transition of going to the other side of the table and sort of how did it feel when you got started? So venture capital is like a very smart career to do. You get to see lots of brilliant people and hear their ideas. It's, it's full of like intellectual candy. You, you constantly see all this energy. But as an investor, you're one step removed. Right. So it's sort of the difference between, you know, as a founder, 
we're in Boston, so we'll talk big pappy standing at the, at the plate swinging for the Grand Slam. That's you as the founder. When you're the investor, you're sort of in the stands, you're kind of wearing the swag, but you know, it don't really affect what's really happening. So it's a less intense role, but I think still an important role. And there's only about, I'd say, a thousand VCs in the country who can really write a check. And sure. it's a great privilege to be in that position and able to help back people. Do you ever feel wistful about the other thing, though? Like, do you ever feel like, oh, I wish I was taking the big swing again? Or do you ever get the temptation to go back? There are definitely times when I think, okay, that was a lot of fun. And being a seed stage VC is as close as you can get to that because you're, you're helping people. And every once in a while we do an incubation and I actually will step back in and, and help get something started. So it's a perfect job right now. And thinking back to starting E-Inc and then obviously moving on to these other startups before becoming a VC yourself, what's one story or one anecdote you can point to from your founder journey that you think is really relevant now to founders of today or that you find yourself pulling on a lot when you are talking with these different companies? So, you know, E-Inc survived several near-death moments. Mm. And what I've found over the years is basically people only want to hear about the near-death moments. So. <laughs> right. One of those that's kind of similar to today was the collapse of the financial markets. And actually, we went through several. Most relevant for us is the year 2000, actually, the dot-com crash, when all this easy money suddenly dried up. And we had raised $107 million at a $300 million valuation without ever having a dime of revenue. And it all went away. And we were burning $2 million a month because we were gonna to try to launch a product, which wasn't a very good product, but it's what we needed to go public. So our whole like strategy was around the financial bubble, basically. That was not good. So we had to kind of figure out how we would survive to build real revenue, real traction. It involved slimming down our costs considerably and just grinding into the details. Is that what you advise portfolio companies now when they're looking around? Like, do you feel like it's a similar moment because, like, you know, you hear a lot of comparisons to 2008, but then you think, you mentioned 2000, right? And that, yeah. that seems more like a parallel, depending on how serious you think the situation is. My view today is it's better than either 2008 and 2001. Oh, okay. So we had is in 2021 and 22, we had like an avalanche of money. Yeah. And so, like, we're through with the avalanche, but there's still plenty of snow. Like, if you look at current VC deployments, relative to the past decade, we're still above average, I yeah. think. So there's plenty of capital out there right now for good deals. In, in 2008, the markets literally seized up and nothing could be done. In 2000, you had even sharper pulldowns yeah. than you did now. So I think this is actually a perfect time to start a company. There's less froth. There's less competition. Yeah, it's a little harder to get your money, but mm -hmm. it's still quite feasible. And the input costs of talent are much more available. And so I think it's still a very good time to start things. And since you did start companies that weren't all that similar to each other, like maybe take us back to starting E-Inc, where you got the idea from and sort of how you were able to grow there, starting different companies that were sort of not in the same area, coming up with different ideas to execute on. I was bitten by the startup bug and... Uh, former professor I'd had at business school was friends. His father was friends with the father of a professor at MIT. I mean, this is how it works in Boston. And I went over to visit uh, Joe Jacobson over at the MIT Media Lab. And he had this vision. He says, we're going to change the world. And he made me look through a microscope and you could just see this like little ink pixel 
switching from like dark gray to lighter dark gray. And he's like, this is it. We're changing the world with this. Like, Joe, I don't really understand. He said, look, publishing is a $4 billion industry. But once you've published something, it doesn't change. The information won't update. And at that time, computer displays would change, but they weren't good to read on. And so that was a $90 billion industry. And he just said, look, and, uh, you know, it's the immortal words of Hannah Montana, the best of both worlds, <laughs> right? Print and digital, we're going to have electronic paper. I was a little skeptical until I looked at the microscope, Becca, and then I saw the actual motion of the, of the particles. So I saw, like, the scientific principle. Mm. It was beautiful. Mm. And I had a, a very emotional, like, I fell in love with that technology. And then it took over the next 12 years of my life. <laughs> And, you know, a hundred investors later, $150 million later, we, we finally sold it for about half a billion dollars. And it was, nobody knew anything about that type of chemistry. Like, it was not something you could have studied in school. So everything was self-taught along the way. But what I learned is I really like scientists and I love the idea of pushing the cutting edge. And so everything I've done in my career since, the two startups, and then everything I do at E-Ink, at Pillar, I only invest in things that I think are first-of-a-kind, cutting-edge innovations. Mm -hmm. And thinking that that was the type of company you started building, and as you mentioned, you were going up against two very large legacy industries and sort of trying to find this product that would put them somewhere in the middle. What was that like building from there, knowing there are these big legacy industries and you guys were really doing something novel and new that didn't really exactly fit on either side? So I think it's good to compete against big established companies. Sure. They have really learned a lot of processes that keep them, you know, like a railroad on a certain track. It's hard for them to adjust to the new entrant. So I would always feel good competing against big companies generally. And we were helped at that time by the internet bubble because even though we weren't an internet company, people would believe, you know, things are changing. It's a transformational yeah. moment. And that's really the friend of the founder the belief that, that, like, I think I can, I think I can, you know, that kind of engine is really important. So I benefited from starting it at that time. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned the, it was the bubble, but people were also, like, thinking about, well, what, there is possibility even in, sometimes especially in the darkest moments, right? There's this a sense of, like, well, something has to change. This necessitates a change. And so if you are at the forefront of that, like, you can take advantage, right? Yeah, without great crisis, we cannot have great heroes, right, right? Right. Or people will say necessity is the mother of invention. So yeah, you know, if you raise a hundred million dollars and, and the technology is not working, that's a lot of necessity. <laughs> yeah. And we have, I think, 600 issued patents. There was a lot of invention needed to make it work. Because it was a long journey and it, it remains. It's a, it's a technology that I think is terrific and applied in very many ways, but also has a lot of remaining potential yet to be realized, right? Yes. I would say. So were there times during that journey when you had seen it and you had fallen in love with it, but did you lose faith at any point in there? And did you have these crises of faith or how did you deal with that kind of stuff? Yeah, I think entrepreneurship is sort of a roller coaster ride. Mm -hmm. And there were plenty of moments where I was worried. And probably year seven was a critical time for me. What, where, what was that? The uh, What went about? Sir, 2000? So that'd be 2004. Uh, I'll say maybe six years. 2003 was a tough moment for me. We were 100 million in. We'd never shipped anything. We were coming up against a tough funding environment. My friends from business school were on their second houses. 
and I had a baby, right. and I was like, what have I done with right. my career? This is like a giant, I've dug a giant crater, you know, and I'm not sure I'm going to reach the other side of the earth here. And I was just really fortunate at that moment. We brought in an outside CEO. When we first raised a ton of money, we brought in an outside CEO. And he, at that moment, said, I think this is going to be a long journey. Mm. And he resigned. And oh, wow. I was the business original business founder. like, okay, now you're the CEO. So it was a new job. I'm like, okay, I'll give that a shot. Yeah. And I was fortunate. In, inside a year, we had kind of figured out our technical problems. And we started to grow very rapidly. Four million, five million, nine, sixteen. 16. 40, 200. <laughs> so 16 to like 200 in two years was really a fun challenge. Yeah, yeah. I, so I think once we could see some revenue, then although it was really hard, like there was definitely, your hand was in the mangler. You're going to keep going. Mm-hmm. And now looking back on that experience, obviously when you're dealing with some of those lower points where you couldn't see necessarily where the journey was headed, and now that you're past it, obviously years past it, what advice would you give to founders who might find themselves in those situations now? Obviously, we're in a tougher fundraising environment. VCs have different demands than they did two years ago. And sort of what would you take away from that experience that you would pass on now to the companies you work with? It's so hard. This is like the toughest question if you're a founder and your business isn't like magically working. Mm-hmm. Do you keep going or not? Right. You know, maybe you've drilled down and you're just one foot away from the oil well gusher and you could just... You're almost there. And if you walked away, so my advice would be, if you can keep getting capital, keep pushing, keep pushing. And ultimately, like everybody has to go through these tough moments and requires persistence. I think a very difficult moment would come up if you ran out of capital or it was presented on a tough term. So for example, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people right now are going to go through a down round or, or potentially go through a down round. And basically what happens in a down round is that you sort of lose all the equity you vested, you have to, your clock starts again. Yeah. Four more years. So you'd like, do you re-enlist? Do you sign up again? And that's, that's the moment where I actually do think it would be okay to say like, nope, mm. you know, this isn't for me. But what I would encourage people is that I do think a down round shouldn't be seen as like a badge of, oh, you failed. It's actually good news. You're being given a ticket to try again. Right. And so I think if you still believe in the mission, you try again. I mean, I think particularly now, right? We see a lot of talk of down rounds now, but you, especially in a time like this, when it's easy to ascribe to environmental factors, but it is that vote of like, no, but I think we still think you could do this. And yes. environmental factors have yes. changed, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. It may or may not be your fault. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Inc., we had <clears throat> three down rounds <laughs> in a row. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so you can just imagine the board discussions over the course of three or four years getting very tough. But we wouldn't be here if we hadn't done that. And, you know, like the first time, it was clearly we chose a poor strategy. We poured all our money into this ill-fated attempt to commercialize too soon just to be able to say we had revenue so we could go public. That was a bad move. The second time, it was really that the technology wasn't quite finished. I don't know whose fault that is. Mm. It's just a hard problem. The third time, and this is something that can kill a lot of hardware companies in particular, it was because we mismanaged our inventory. Mm. And uh, Motorola had given us a forecast to buy $100 million worth of product. So we were a $9 million company. They offered to buy $100 million worth of product. Mm. If we would pour all our money into a new factory and we'd spend all our cash on inventory. 
And then they started to sell the product and they didn't, it was global product. They realized it wasn't selling as well as they thought. And they had some financial problems. And so they refused to pay the bill. Uh, I remember calling them and saying like, I raised $20 million to probably around. Like, I have like $19 billion worth of inventory in my warehouse, customized with like the Motorola logo. <laughs> and I have a signed purchase order. Yeah. Right. And they said, we have 100 lawyers. And uh. nothing. And so I had to go back to my board the third time, go back to my board and say, I know you just gave me $20 million. I need more. And at that point, though, you have a lot of ammo for them, right? Because you're, look, look at what we delivered. We did this thing, right? Yes. So you're yes. showing off you can do a lot, but then you're also saying, but we've also demonstrated the demand might not be there right now for the market, for the technology we've created. Right, exactly. That's a very good point. And so, like, what does the board think? Like, well, the Motorola product's not selling. Right, 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 right. So, yeah, I think the two things that kind of got me, the reason I still had my job after, <laughs> after that, number one is, and I really advise people to always be transparent with your investors. Mm. And so they may not have liked the news. Right. But at least they trusted, I was sincerely telling them bad news and not like giving them a line of like, it's all fine. And I think the other thing was that I was really devoted to self-improvement. I didn't walk in with all the skills. I had an MBA. I did not have all the skills to be a CEO. I made tons of errors. Mm. I lost good talents. I, you know, but each year I would try to learn a little more. And I did 360s. I had like an outside CEO group with CEOs. We would peer counsel each other. People on the board would mentor me. I had two different independent directors who would each run, you know, like billion dollar companies or $10 billion companies. And every few months I would get a little better and they could at least say, well, eventually you'll figure it out. (laughs) And so I'm very lucky they took a, they were patient with me. That's such an interesting thing to talk about today because I feel we've just seen so many issues over the last year. The FTX stuff, the stuff now with Frank, like founders are not being super transparent. Of course, that's a generalization, but... We've seen many instances of founders not being fully transparent with their investors, or we know companies now, not everyone has a board anymore. Mm. And we're all getting into this like weird operating area. And I'm curious like what you see looking at startups now as a VC, thinking of all this learning and all this journey you did to become a great CEO. And what do you think now of kind of like seeing how a lot of that stuff is just not as in favor anymore? Well, I mean, I think integrity is always in fashion. <laughs> well, you want it to be, yeah. I don't know what to say. Right now, we have this environment where there's a lot of noise. Yeah. Where it's like we're in a post-truth society, you know? Like, people are talking about what's fake and what's real. And so, I don't know if somehow that corrosively makes it feel okay to, to not tell the truth. My least favorite phrase in startups is, fake it till you make it. Right. Mm. I don't believe in that. I don't believe in that. I think that if you are straightforward with people and you're transparent, you'll get the help you need. And if you're not transparent, you will not get the help you did need. So anyway, what we're doing at Pillar, part of how we select which founders to back is we look for people who like to be, by the way, I have this one portfolio, Kingsley is in here somewhere, that uh, thank you for coming. You know, we look for people who want to be self-improving. And you can tell that because you can say to them, like, what's the most recent book you've read? What's the most, you listen to the Found Podcast? Okay. (laughs) You're trying to self-improve. Yeah, exactly. Easy. But, you know, you'd be surprised. Like, that's only 20% of the founders who bother to kind of try to continue to up their game. But the faster the world works, the more you have to devote your energy to Mm self-improvement. What are some other things you look for now as a VC? You mentioned science too, right? Which must be difficult for all the reasons you outlined about how to 
bring something like that that is starting in like basic materials research or whatever into the commercial sphere. But what are kind of your approaches to investment? Okay, I, I have one tip, what? which is this is like so like so actionable. <laughs> like practice your bio. <laughs> I look, Daryl, I look for someone who I say, tell me about yourself. Mm. Can they just explain who they are in about two minutes? Before we give you $2 million <laughs> and two years, how will you spend your two minutes? And if you cannot give a well-organized explanation of who you are and what you're trying to do mm. in two minutes, like it, it's not going to work out <laughs> with the $2 million. And so even though it's two minutes out of 30-minute or 60-minute call, yeah. and actually for seed stage, mostly what investors invest in is the human being. So it's half the decision occurs in the first two minutes. Yeah. So practice your bio. It's great too. I don't think I could do this. I don't think... gonna beat. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what I would say in two minutes. Yeah. Yeah, I would be awful at it. But I don't I don't ever get two million dollars. Yeah, no one's ever given either of us two million dollars. This is why. Now I understand. But you'll explain who you are and how it connects to what you're trying to do. And that's it. What else, though? What else do you think about with your investment thesis? Like, what is your ideal company makeup? Or are you thinking about company makeup at that time? Or are you really just focused? If I think the person is backable, I want to know if there's an investable thesis. I ask the same four questions. And I put this on my Twitter. <laughs> like any, I ask, here's my questions. I'll ask you, who's going to buy this and why? Mm. Do you make money when you sell it? Oh, you got a product people want to buy and you're going to make money? Now this is interesting. Mm. How many can you sell? A lot. And then my fourth question is a little trickier is like, what will you do to protect your profits? So like once it's obvious that you found a good product, other people are going to try to copycat and compete. And the big incumbents are going to have some sort of allergic reaction to you. So what are you going to do? Mm -hmm. And the usual, the best answer is some form of network effect or scale economy or, or patent or something that protects more than just like, I've got to hustle harder than the next guy. Yeah, yeah. And if they are a backable person, they've got those four questions, they have an investable thesis. Then my last question is, well, how much do you want to raise? And at what price? Mm -hmm. And if it fits our, our fund, then I say yes. And it happens 1% of the time. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And something that I think is interesting is you obviously sold e-ink through an acquisition. And yeah. we think of the last few years, the startup market has become so obsessed with IPO. And like that's the path to exit. Everyone wants the billion dollar plus IPO. And with your best experience that your company did not exit through an IPO, how do you feel like you can talk to entrepreneurs about that now and like expectation setting? Because not every company's right for the billion dollar IPO, but I do feel like the market's really swung in that direction over the last few years. But with your experience, how do you talk to founders about all the options? Look, I think one thing we've all seen in the last decade is venture funds have swollen. They've gotten bigger. Mm -hmm. And the rule of thumb in venture now, so now I've been doing venture capital six years, so I have more of the, how the psychology works. The rule of thumb is they're not going to invest unless they think your one investment can return their entire fund. Right. Well, when the fund was $200 million, you needed at least, you know, a billion dollar exit and they would own 20%. If the fund is a billion, they need you to have a $5 billion exit. Right. Now, your interest is not aligned with that. I can say as a mm -hmm. founder, like, I'd be happy with any exit, with right. anything. I just want to be able to, like, pay off my house, yeah. you know? Like, so I think as a founder, the more VC money you take, the more you're forced into, especially from big, big funds, the more you're forced into, well, I have to hit a grand slam or go home. There's no single for me. Yeah. So if you can raise less capital, you'll leave yourself open to the option 
Now, we had raised $150 million by the end. That's a lot of capital. But we'd had the down rounds. Mm-hmm. So our valuation was only like 40. So at that point, so like we had a $480 million exit. They all made 10x. They were thrilled. Yeah. And I was only able to do that because we had set an appropriate valuation. So this is the consequence. It looks like when you set a $700 million valuation, it looks like you're winning somehow when you're not being diluted. But actually, you've just raised the bar so high. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we contribute to that because we like those big numbers too on our uh, headlines at the valuation stage, right? But yeah, I think it's, it's lost a lot that it is, you should right size, right? I think that people get this idea that like, I'm going to go for it all. Bigger is always yes. better. Yeah. 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 And here's the irony. We sold it in, sold it in 2009. I sold it for half a billion dollars to a company that was worth half a billion dollars and together one billion. When the, the merger was announced, it went up to two billion. Yeah. Okay. Since then, they kind of petered along for a billion for a decade. But during that time, the price of E-Ink kept coming down and down and down. And they suddenly just broke through to a whole new application beyond e-books, which is electronic shelf price labels. Yeah. And that's actually an even bigger market. So right now, the, th- the company trades at $6 billion. <laughs> so actually, <laughs> if I had just been you know, patient for an extra decade, it would have been exactly what the big funds are looking for. But I look at that decade and I got to spend time with my kids. I, you know, I did have my mortgage paid off. I, you know, like I had 10 years of life not going after it. And so for me personally, I actually think it's better for a founder to have like two, three, four hundred million dollar exit sooner than later. But everybody's going to make their personal decision about what they care about. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I also wanted to just ask about the process of taking something that was a research project, like a scientific discovery, essentially, and then commercializing that, turning that into a company. And what advice do you have for other people who are looking to do that? What should they be thinking about? How do they know that the time is now to do that versus staying in the lab for a while longer? What kind of tips do you have there? Okay. So I think a lot of the people at the conference today are actually in universities. They might be grad students thinking about spinouts. It's a really good question. Over half of what we do is university spinouts. And we've kind of got a playbook for that. Part of it is stay, stay in the university, <laughs> you know, as long as you can, because right now your costs are being covered. Yeah. The time to leave is when the work you need to do can no longer really be funded in an academic setting. I think the part of how you know it's venture backable is if you see how your invention can achieve something that's sort of like a holy grail. So like you know, an infinite source of clean energy or an air conditioner that's half the energy cost or a cure for cancer. You need some, like, headline mm-hmm. for your invention that the typical investor will get excited about because if there's a lot of science risk, you have to be able to convince investors that there's less market risk. Right, right. So it has to be something, like, very clearly is going to be exciting. If there's no market for it, then people don't want to take a technical risk. Mm-hmm. And then the other comment, it's all about staging the steps to use as little cash as possible. So how can you very quickly, like, disprove your own thesis? Mm. So the best thing, you know, if you're very busy as a founder, you're so busy, how, what do you do every day? And I think the best thing you should do is wake up and say, if I'm going to fail, what's going to kill me? And just spend today trying to eliminate your greatest risk. Because what happens is that actually grows the value of your company by eliminating that risk. So that's actually the fastest way to grow the value of your company. Don't do the things that are easy, that you know how to do, 
that you're sure you can do later, you do the things that might kill you. Mm. So in this technical startups, it's often some science lab work that sort of tests whether this thing can be commercially viable. But if you're a consumer startup, it might be like, let me run a marketing campaign and see what my cost of customer acquisition is. Mm -hmm. You know, don't wait. Right. Do a test market. Fat now. And so it's scary for founders because that might be, their baby might be over. But that's actually what you should do. Wake up every day and go right after your biggest risk. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's interesting because it's like from a writing background. It's like the kill your babies metaphor, oh, yeah. which is like a Cut your terrible darling. one. But like, What's the metaphor? Well, it's like the things you love. Like you should go after them most. Uh, or, or like the characters you love or whatever, like you should put them in the most. Yes. If you love a sentence, strike it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, look, startups are an act. Someone's asking me like, will AI replace the venture capitalist? I'm like, not in the early. No, not in the early <laughs> not stage. Well. <laughs> yeah, not because it's an act of faith. Mm. It's an act of faith. And I was not a very spiritual person going e into E-Ink, but after raising all the money and like having my... You know, I began to realize that the reason that that company succeeded was because a group of people just decided they wanted it to. Right. Mm. And they just stuck with it till it did. And they did it really that looked like it wasn't going to make any money multiple times. But they just did it because they just thought it would be fancy and cool uh -huh. to make a piece of paper that could typeset itself. And I just think that willpower is what you're trying to assess in the early stage yeah. a lot. And how can it, you really do need a human interaction? And it is an act of faith to back somebody with the first check. Right. Mm -hmm. With this tougher funding environment we're in now, and as you mentioned, obviously, especially with some of these science backed startups, it takes a while to even get the product, to even start making money. It looks like maybe a longer journey than some startups in the SaaS space. What advice do you give to startups now? The road looks particularly long, particularly windy, and hard. Yeah. So if you're doing a frontier technology, the road is long, the road is windy, it will be hard. The population of VCs that will talk to you is only like 10 or 15% of the total. So it's harder. But just remember that a challenge on the way in becomes a barrier to entry for followers once you're over the wall. So the wall is your enemy on this side, but it's going to be your friend on the other side. So as hard as it gets for you, that's actually value you're creating once you figure out how to get through it. The other kind of comment that I make to people is that you've got to find P investors who like really believe with you and also will kind of throw their hearts over the wall with you. And that's, that's an important, you've got to find that chemistry that, with the person. Nice. I do want to say I, I really do love e-ink as well. I think maybe as much as you. I'm, I have like six or seven like e-ink tablets in my house that I barely use any of them. I've got the remarkable, I've got the like. Yeah. The Koba one and the Amazon one, I've got them all. It's ridiculous. Yeah. But it is, it's because there is something just very magical about it. There's something of a magical about the tactile, like whatever. So I can see like how you would fall in love with that and then like stick with that problem, right? But yeah, and I think everybody who's trying to do frontier tech, they've got to discover what in it is the magic and have that be their motivation. Yeah. Because if it the only motivation is let me get rich quick, you're bound to be disappointed at some point and give up. And it's only if you're really in love with it that you'll stick with it. Yeah. I think that's about time here for us, but it was lovely talking to you. And I think yeah. you gave us a lot of great advice for founders to follow. Definitely. Thanks again. Thanks. Thank you. Found is hosted by myself, managing editor Daryl Etherington and TechCrunch Plus reporter Becca Skutak. We're produced by Maggie Stamets with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. Alyssa Stringer leads audience development and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch's audio products. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.